Now in this class, we have considered uh, some attributes of God according to the teaching of the scriptures. And this morning, as I've already mentioned, we'll consider the attribute of God's goodness. Now this is a massive topic, really considering any of the attributes of God is a massive study, but I think the goodness of God perhaps is even bigger than most. But by way of introduction, good and goodness are two words which we use frequently, and we know their meaning, and yet when we're asked to define them, we can find it challenging. As with the word love, we also use the words good and goodness in ways that to some degree diminish their meaning, especially when we connect these words with God. We, we don't always think as we should think about this reality of God's goodness. For example, here in common speaking, we often will say things like this, I love coffee. Of course, that's very different than loving God, isn't it? Or we will say something like, it's so good when I taste coffee early in the morning. Those are things that I might say, and I'm not criticizing speaking in this way about drinking coffee early in the morning and saying I love coffee. But my point is that when we come to think about God, about God's being, his character, his words, his works, his ways, we need to really recalibrate our thinking and speaking. What do we mean? What do we understand when we speak about God's goodness, the fact that God is good? What do we mean? Well, let me quote several authors, several individuals of different time frames as well. One man wrote, The goodness of God is the loveliness, benevolent character, sweetness, friendliness, kindness, and generosity of God. Goodness is the very essence of God's being. Even if there were no creature to whom this could be manifested. You see what the author was saying. It's the very essence of God's being. Even if there were no creatures like us here on this earth. Another author wrote, God's goodness is that which sets him apart from all malice, cruelty, and harshness, and characterizes him as kind, generous, trustworthy, and gracious. And yet another man wrote this, God's goodness is that perfection of God, which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. God is the summum bonum, Sorry, Pastor Chansky, if I mispronounced those Latin words. God is the summum bonum, Latin for the highest good for all his creatures. And then lastly, God is not only good, he is goodness itself, the supreme inconceivable goodness. And so there, there you have four uh, one, two, three, four authors who are commenting on this reality of God's goodness, the fact that God is good. Now, ultimately, of course, and primarily, we need to turn to the scriptures in order to have them reveal this truth and reality about God, that God is good. And we must also think, as we read scripture, because there are actually many passages which speak of the goodness of God and yet do not use that word goodness or good. And so we have to think as we read the scriptures because the reality of the goodness of God is pervasive throughout the Bible, even when those words good and goodness are not necessarily used. So first of all, this morning, let's consider a description of God's goodness. I don't think the word definition is the best word. It could be used, definition of God's goodness, but let's call it the description of God's goodness. First of all, even as one of these authors has already stated, God's goodness is his very essence. 
God's goodness is his very essence. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 119 and verse 68. Psalm 119, verse 68. <clears throat> A very simple statement, very profound as well. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So the psalmist declares here the simple and yet profound truth that God is in his being and essence absolutely and totally good. And because God is good, God always does what is good. You see, you are good and do good. It cannot be otherwise. God never does that which is contrary to his being and character. In fact, God's attribute of goodness encompasses many, perhaps all, I'm not sure about that, but certainly many of God's other attributes, revealing that goodness is his very essence. Turn now to Exodus 33 and verse 18. Exodus 33 and verse 18. Moses and the Israelites are in their wandering years. And in Exodus 33, verse 18, we read, And Moses said, Show me, I pray you, your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now notice that. Moses asked, Show me, I pray you, your glory. And God's response is, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Jehovah before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So you see right there, God is revealing that goodness, his goodness is this all-encompassing reality of his many Attributes. I will make my goodness pass before you. And it would seem from God's words that his graciousness is part of that goodness. His showing mercy to needy sinners is also part of that goodness of God. But now continue on. Drop down to Exodus 34 and verse 4. For the sake of time, we're not going to read the intervening verses but this is the continuation of the history, a continuation of the communication between Moses and God. Exodus 34, verse 4. And he, Moses, hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as Jehovah had commanded him, and took in his hand two tables of stone. And Jehovah descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Jehovah. And Jehovah passed by before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, upon the third and upon the fourth generation. And there we stop the reading. So note from these two passages, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, Note from these two passages that God passed before Moses and proclaimed that his attribute of goodness includes his mercy, grace, and slowness to anger. When you compare the two passages, what's said in chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Exodus 33, and then in 
chapter 34, Jehovah passed by before him, before Moses. So he's declaring his attribute of goodness and that it includes God's mercy, grace, and slowness to anger. His abundant loving kindness, truth, and faithfulness, keeping loving kindness, you see, is faithfulness. His readiness to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. His righteousness and justice by no means clearing the guilty. So you see, this attribute of God's goodness has many facets, like a beautiful cut diamond. And for various reasons, I've had the occasion to think about a visit that I had years ago to the Tower of London. And in the Tower of London, in the city of London, you have the crown jewels of the British monarchy there in a vault that you can see. And they're really astonishing. And the largest cut diamond in that collection is in the king's scepter or the queen's scepter, whoever's monarch at that time. And that particular diamond, which is as large as my fist, it's called the Cullinan One Diamond. It's also known as the Great Star of Africa. And it was given as a gift to the British monarchy. This is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. And it's mounted in that scepter, as I've said. And when you see it, it is just astonishing. The Great Star of Africa diamond has many facets. And each of those facets causes the light to shine forth with brilliance and with a rainbow of colors, flashes of color, flashes of beauty. It's so astonishing that as I stood there, I found out that my mouth was open. And I, and I realized I'm standing there and my, my mouth's open at this. It's just amazingly beautiful. But you see, so it is with this attribute of God's goodness. God's goodness has many facets which shine forth with brilliance, displaying the beauties and the excellencies of our good and gracious God. It's showing forth all of the excellencies of his many attributes. We should think of God's goodness in this way. It is like that great star of Africa in that scepter there in London. Well, expanding upon this reality of God's multifaceted and glorious attribute of goodness, the Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote the following. I think this is very helpful. When God's goodness confers happiness without merit, it is grace. When God's goodness bestows happiness against merit, it is mercy. When God's goodness bears with provoking rebels, it is long-suffering. When God's goodness performs his promise, it is truth. When God's goodness commiserates a distressed person, it is pity. When God's goodness supplies an indigent person, it is bounty. When God's goodness succors an innocent person, it is righteousness. And when God's goodness pardons a penitent person, it is, again, mercy. All are summed up in this one name, God's goodness. And that's the end of Charnock's quote. So you see, grace is a manifestation of God's goodness. Mercy, manifestation of God's goodness. Long-suffering or patience, a manifestation of God's goodness. Truth, pity, bounty, righteousness. These are all manifestations of this attribute of God. God's goodness. But where do we find? Where do we find in the scriptures, in history, the supreme demonstration and display of God's goodness? It is, of course, in the life and in the death 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you consider the Lord's words as he walked on this earth, when you consider the Lord's actions as he interacted with his disciples, as he interacted with sinners, as he interacted with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as he interacted with those in distress and need, when you read the Lord's responses to these various folks, when you see displays of his self-denying love, and then when you see that he went to the cross and willingly received the wrath of God upon himself for the sins of his people, there is where you really see the supreme display, the supreme demonstration of God's goodness. It's there in the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's move on now. God's goodness is not only his very essence, God's goodness is eternal. Turn to Psalm 90 and verse 1. Psalm 90 and verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And there we stop the reading. From everlasting to everlasting, Moses declared, for that's who wrote Psalm 90, you are God. As God is eternal and has no beginning and no end, so his goodness is eternal. There is no beginning and no ending to God's goodness. And if I may speak in human terms, we should not think that God is good today, but tomorrow he will not be good. We should not think that there was a time when God was not good. No, God's goodness is eternal, even as God himself is eternal. We need to think about such very lofty, very theological, and yet very practical and very pastoral matters. They will affect your affections as you think about these truths about God, and they will affect the way you look at life and they will affect the way you live in this world. So God's goodness is eternal. But let's move on. Number three, God's goodness is infinite. God cannot be measured. God cannot be quantified. God cannot be placed in a box, as we say. God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation. Now just stop and try to think about that. He transcends all spatial limitations, is immediately present in every part of his creation. Time and space are not constraints upon God. And therefore, God is free from all limits in his character in his power, in his knowledge. God, we say correctly, is infinitely holy, infinitely powerful, and infinite in his knowledge. And God's goodness, therefore, is also infinite. It is without measure. It is perfect. God is perfect and infinite goodness. Or stated another way, God's goodness has no imperfections. God's goodness has no limits. Now, how can we grasp and comprehend the reality of God's infinite goodness? Well, we must humble ourselves and remember that we are creatures of dust, creatures of time and sense, creatures who are sinners, creatures who are very finite. John Owen, the Puritan, stated that even in Christ, we see but, quote, the back parts of God, 
Owen was referring to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. John Owen continued, he wrote this, All our notions of God are but childish in respect of his infinite perfections. We lisp and babble and say we know not what, for the most part, in our most accurate, as we think, conceptions and notions of God. There I end the quote. You see, it is very, very difficult for us to grasp the reality that God is infinite. And therefore, it is very difficult to grasp and understand that God's goodness is also infinite. And with such contemplations of God and his goodness, we're brought to the place where we can agree with the Apostle Paul and his words in Romans 11, where he breaks out in this doxology of praise, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him that it shall be recompensed to him again? For of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. So though this is an amazingly uh, mind-blowing and in one sense very challenging task to contemplate the realities of God's goodness, the fact that his goodness is infinite, we are to do that. We're to take the time and endeavor to try to understand and grasp this reality that God's goodness is infinite. God's goodness is eternal. God's goodness is God's very essence. We are to think about these things because it will affect, it will affect your affections. It will affect the way you live. But fourthly, God's goodness is immutable or unchangeable. Turn to Psalm 102. Psalm 102 and verse 25. Of old you did lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish, but you shall endure. Yes, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture, you shall change them, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall have no end. And there we stop our reading. You see, God does not change. In contrast to the created earth, the creator does not wax old like this earth is waxing old. The creator will never perish like this present earth will one day perish. The creator does not and will not change like a piece of clothing that gets frayed and worn out in the elbows and you then throw it out. No, that's not true with regards to God. That's what the psalmist is declaring. The creator is the same and never changes. He is immutable. And therefore, none of his attributes change, including this reality of God's goodness. And again, you need to stop and think about this. My God, who is infinitely good, is also unchangeably good. Nothing and no one can add to God's goodness because it's perfect. Nothing and no one can make God more good, if I may speak with such terrible grammar, probably. Nothing and no one can make God more good. Likewise, nothing and no one can detract from God and his goodness, can diminish God's goodness. You see, God's goodness doesn't change. It's perfect. 
It is immutable. It does not need to change, and it will not change. It is like God himself. So in addition, when we read in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever, we need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ in glory is indeed immutable and immutably good. When the Lord was here on this earth, was he ever moved with compassion as he beheld sinners, as he beheld real sheep without a shepherd? He was. Did the Lord, when he was here on earth, welcome, forgive, and save vile sinners? Yes, he did. That was a manifestation of the Lord's goodness. And you see, the Lord's unchanging goodness towards needy sinners, towards his people, continues to this very moment in time, indeed forevermore, because though he is seated in glory, he is immutably good. And so we need to declare the gospel to sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ indeed is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchangeably good, and he offers himself freely to you for the forgiveness of your sins. This reality of the unchanging goodness of the triune God is an anchor to the soul of the Christian in the midst of a changing world, which is full of not only changes, but full of sin and evil. So yes, change and decay all, all around us we do see, but our God, our triune God does not change. He does not decay. And so when you think upon these truths and trust in the living God through Jesus Christ, you see, that becomes an anchor to your soul and life in the midst of this changing, tumultuous world full of sin and evil. But now let's consider, secondly, the manifestation of God's goodness. We've talked about a description of God's goodness. Now let's consider some manifestations of God's goodness. First of all, at creation. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1 and verse 31. Genesis 1 and verse 31. <clears throat> and God saw everything that he had made... And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here at creation before the fall, a manifestation of God's goodness is seen in the creation itself. Everything he made was very good. Sin had not affected the world in which we live. But now drop down to Genesis 2 and verses 21 and 22. Genesis 2, 21. And Jehovah God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which Jehovah God had taken from the man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And there we stop our reading. Again, sin has not yet entered the world, but the point is, is these are historical manifestations of the goodness of God. Everything God created was very good. And with regards to man himself, he knew that the man needed a helper corresponding to his needs. And here in Genesis 2, we read what God did. He took the rib from the man and he made a woman and brought her unto the man. This was a manifestation of God's goodness. It still is to this day in a fallen world a manifestation of God's goodness when God brings a woman to a specific man to be a husband and wife. That still is a manifestation of God's goodness, even in this fallen world. But how much more in this unfallen state? 
All of the riches of God's good creation were given to Adam and Eve. But God's goodness is manifested not just to Adam and Eve, not just even to men, but to all of God's creatures. Turn to Psalm 145 and verse 9. Psalm 145 and verse 9. Jehovah is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And then in verse 16 of Psalm 145, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So we need to think beyond ourselves, beyond our own worlds, and we need to realize that God shows forth this attribute of his goodness to all of his creatures here on this earth. He's the one who gives the birds food to eat. He's the one who gives the colors of the leaves. I thought of this during the praise service on Wednesday night. One individual, one sister, made comments about how beautiful God's creation is, even in the autumn with the leaves changing colors. And that particular sister said how even just watching the leaves flutter down to the earth, you see, I'm not quoting her, but the goodness of God. And she was right. And this is what Psalm 145 is teaching us, that God is good to all of his creation, even in this fallen world. He opens his hands and he gives abundantly to every living thing. But furthermore, again, back to men and women, turn to Psalm 107. God manifests his goodness to men and women in general ways. Psalm 107 and verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto Jehovah. Why? For he is good. For his loving kindness endures forever. And many of these writers dealing with the attribute of God's goodness point out that the loving kindness, this hesed mercy in the Old Testament, is an aspect of God's goodness. And then the psalmist in Psalm 107 continues, Let the redeemed of Jehovah say so. In other words, speak, give thanks to God for his goodness. And then turn to Acts 17 and verse 24. Acts 17 and verse 24. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the people of Athens, Greece on this occasion. Many of whom were at that point unconverted pagans, idolaters. Acts 17, 24. The God that made the world and all things therein, he, being Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is he served by men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he himself gives to all life, breath, and all things, you see. Here in this passage, Paul was revealing that God is independent of men and his creation. He does not need anything or anyone, but he also declares the goodness of God, that God himself gives to all life and breath and all things. The fact that you are here breathing is a manifestation of God's goodness to you. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded, nor have their hope set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, here Paul is instructing the young pastor Timothy what he is to say to those in the congregation who are wealthy, not to put their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but put their hope on God, the living God, and why he highlights that God is the one who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy your turkey on Thanksgiving Day or to enjoy good food any other day of the week. It is God who has given us all things 
to enjoy, richly given us all things to enjoy. This is a manifestation of God's goodness. Turn now to James 1 and verse 17. James 1 verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom can be no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. So again, James is highlighting that the good gifts that we receive, they've come from our good God. We need to understand this, and we need to thank God for every good gift that he gives to us. But now God manifests his goodness also to fallen man. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. I realize that for many of you, these truths are not new truths. Perhaps for some here, they are new truths, but these are truths that we need to be reminded of. So in Genesis 3, verse 15, we see God's goodness manifested toward fallen man, Adam in particular. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here at the fall of man, when Adam, for no good reason, rebelled against God, disobeyed God's clear, simple command, do not eat the fruit of that specific tree. Of all of these other trees you may freely eat, you see the goodness of God, all of these other trees you may freely eat, but this one tree, do not eat of that one tree. God was not stingy. God was immensely good to Adam and to Eve. But then Adam rebelled, Adam disobeyed, and plunged himself, his wife, and all of his posterity into death and condemnation. God could have left Adam and Eve in that state without any hope, without any promise of future forgiveness through a Messiah. When angels rebelled, God did not give to them a redeemer. But in Genesis 3.15, we see the goodness of God in this first gospel promise. And when we read through the Bible, through the New Testament, we see that indeed Genesis 3.15 is God's first gospel promise. And it is a manifestation of his goodness to fallen man that he will indeed bring forth one day a Messiah. And we know the Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bruise the head of the serpent, Satan himself. And in the process, the Messiah will have his heel bruised by that serpent. And so we need to see the goodness of God, even toward fallen man. But now turn into the New Testament to Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. We're coming into the so-called Christmas season. That's not why I chose this passage. This passage was chosen to show us again God's goodness to fallen man. Luke 2 verse 8. And there were shepherds in the same country abiding in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. And the angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. And the angel said unto them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And there we stop the reading. So you see, here is God manifesting his goodness through this angel announcing to the shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be not just to the Jews, 
but to all the people, a Savior has now been born, Christ the Lord. So we see here again God's goodness manifested towards fallen man. God's goodness is also manifested toward the impenitent. You would say, well, how could that possibly be? Maybe I've worded that not the best way. But it is good that God judges sin. It is good that God judges the impenitent. If he did not judge the impenitent, he would not be good. When we are aware of some criminal broke into a house late at night, raped a young woman, murdered a young child, if that criminal is not punished appropriately, we call that a miscarriage of justice. We see this as wrong. Can that criminal be forgiven in Jesus Christ? Yes. If he repents and believes in Christ alone for the forgiveness of those horrible sins and for all of his sins, yes. But we would say this is not right for that criminal to be just simply let free with no punishment, no repercussions, nothing whatsoever. We say this is not right. It is not good. It is not good. So it is good that God judges the impenitent and punishes sinners. That's not harshness. That's good justice and righteousness. But now let's move on. The benefits of God's goodness. First of all, because God is good, we can experience his goodness. Hopefully you've already realized that from some things that have already been stated, but turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34 and verse 8. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Jehovah is good. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. You see, God's goodness is displayed and given to men, women, boys, and girls, all of whom are sinners and only deserving of God's wrath. But in Psalm 34, verse 8, we are taught that men, women, boys, and girls can by the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit, they can know experientially God and the goodness of God. You can taste, spiritually speaking, and see and understand that the Lord is good. We are to experience that goodness of God. We're to personally acquire that reality. We're to Cry out to God, Lord, help me to not just understand your goodness, but to taste your goodness, to know that reality. We can know it. We are to ask God to know it. So that's a benefit of God's goodness. We can experience God's goodness. And because God is good, he forgives sinners. We've already really considered this, but turn to Psalm 86 and verse 5. The benefit of God's goodness, we can experience it. But secondly, because God is good, he forgives sinners. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness unto all them that call upon you. You see, Lord, you are good. So I, I challenge the Christians here, or even the non-Christians here. How do you think about God when you start to think about God? Do you think of God as essentially good? Or do you think of God as some really dark, horrible, not so kind, uh, being in the sky who really takes some perverse delight 
and making people suffer and have misery and just wants to cast them all into hell. That's not in agreement with the teaching of the Bible concerning who God is. Turn ye, turn ye. Why will you die? Says the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of him that dies. And here in Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Your sins may indeed be extremely black and dark and ugly and deep and extensive and repeated and horrible, and you don't want any other human being to know anything about your sins. You don't want anyone to find out this truth about you. And you then think, I can't really be forgiven for some of these horrible sins. But that's not what we're told here in Psalm 86. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant, not stingy, in loving kindness unto all them that call upon you. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And ask him not only to forgive and pardon, but to cleanse in the blood of Christ. And not only that, but to change you, to transform you, to make you what you are not presently, to make you like Jesus Christ. He's abundant in loving kindness unto all them that call upon him. But thirdly, because God is good, he forgives and restores backsliders. Turn now to Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. These truths could be applied to those who are not backsliders, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it does apply to those who are backsliders. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto you that pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. You see, there's the goodness of God. He delights in loving kindness. Verse 19. He will again have compassion. Compassion is the goodness of God. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And there we stop our reading. So you see, for the backslider in heart... And there may be somebody here this morning who is a professing Christian and you know in your conscience you are a backslider. And Micah, these words are to the remnant of his heritage. For the backslider in heart, for the sinner entangled in his or her sins, a contemplation of God's goodness, thinking about God's goodness, will indeed be used by God to deliver you from such backsliding such entanglement with sins as though you're a little insect in a spider web. Because here, what do we see? We see that God pardons iniquity. God passes over the transgression of his people. God does not persist in his righteous anger. God delights in loving kindness. He again shows compassion to his people. He treads all of their iniquities under his feet. He casts them all into the depths of the sea. When you think about these truths of God's goodness here in Micah chapter 7, that will lead you to return to this infinite, unchangeable, good God for fresh forgiveness and restored joy of salvation. You're to know and understand and grasp the riches of God's goodness to you. They are meant to lead you to repentance, as Paul writes in Romans 2. 
Well, how can such forgiveness of sins and, and restoration to communion with the living God become a reality? It's by believing afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ, by beholding the goodness of God the Father and giving up Jesus Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and sinners, that contemplation will lead you out of your entanglements with sin, out of your doldrums and backsliding, to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You are to think about these realities of God's goodness to you, the sinner. God is good. An easily spoken statement, but a profound truth. And we are to respond to that goodness, if I can use those words, by believing in God, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is a proper response to the understanding of God's goodness. We are also to be thankful to God. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. We are to worship the Lord because he is good. And with this, I'll close. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Our response to God's goodness should be one of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the triune God, thankfulness to God because he is good. But also we are to respond to God and his goodness by worshiping. 2 Chronicles 7, beginning at verse 1. It's the dedication of the temple. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Jehovah filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of Jehovah because the glory of Jehovah filled Jehovah's house. And all the children of Israel looked on when the fire came down and the glory of Jehovah was upon the house. And they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks unto Jehovah, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. What an amazing statement here in the scriptures about this history. They bowed themselves with their faces to the ground. They worshiped. They gave thanks unto the Lord, saying, For he is good. His loving kindness endures forever. Brethren, we are to think about the goodness of God, and we are to respond by worshiping him for his goodness. So let's close now in prayer. We thank you, our God, that you've given us this revelation of yourself in the pages of Scripture. And we pray that this truth concerning you and your goodness, the fact that you are good, that these truths we've considered will grip our hearts and souls will change and transform us from the inside out, and that we would be thankful, that we would indeed worship you, that we would respond by believing in you, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for these mercies and blessings, pleading the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.